I want to read a couple uh, of additional passages. We've read the story of Paul's shipwreck and his time on the island of Malta from Acts 27 and 28. Uh, I've read to you a little snippet of Mark 16 that relates to that passage. I also want to read a couple of uh, Old Testament passages, first from Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 to 3. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which, which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And then from the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, the good news of your salvation for your people in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the way you bless all men. Uh, We thank you even for blessings that, that overflow from the church to the rest of the world. Father, we pray that you would help us to have a big picture vision of your purposes for the world, that we would see your goodness all around us, the way you have poured out kindness upon us, the way you have filled the whole earth with your grace, with your goodness. Father, we pray that you would show these things to us from your word, that we might live more faithfully as your people, that we might be a blessing to everyone around us ourselves. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This story of Paul's shipwreck and his snake bite at the end of Acts has been one that has always fascinated me. Um, When I was preaching through Mark 16 uh, the last few weeks, I revisited this passage because Mark tells us one of the signs of the apostolic ministry would be handling snakes. Uh, It would be able to be be snake bit, as Paul is here, and to uh, survive that. This is the only place, actually, in the New Testament where you find that sign fulfilled, to be bitten by a snake and to survive it. And uh, because of the link between Mark 16 and Acts 28, it kind of got me looking at this passage again, and I realized there was no way I could squeeze in everything that ought to be said about the story in Acts in my sermon on Mark 16, and I decided it really needed a sermon of its own, and so that's what you're getting this morning. Uh, This is not just a story about Paul's grand adventure. Uh, It's not just a story about Paul at sea. It's really a story about the new world order God has set up in Christ. It's about the new world order God has set up where the gospel, the blessings of the gospel, replace the curses of the law. It's really a story about God's goodness, especially God's goodness to his own to his own people, his treasured possession, those he is saving. But it's also a story about God's goodness to all peoples, even his enemies. It's a story about God's purposes for his church and indeed for the whole creation. Through the ministry of Paul here, we get to see the cosmic implications of the gospel, the goodness 
and the newness of the good news. But we also see how God does good even to his enemies, even those outside the church, not saving them, but still bestowing all kinds of temporal blessings upon them. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that uh, Jesus promised his followers three things. They'd be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and constantly in trouble. Those three things await all followers of Jesus. And that's Paul in this story. But Paul's story also shows us the glories of this new creation, the new civilization God has established in Christ, and how this civilization is to the benefit of all. We know that Paul's ambition as a missionary was to preach the gospel. And in particular, it was to preach the gospel in Rome to Caesar. Now, why Caesar? Why was Paul so determined to stand before Caesar and preach Christ to Caesar? What do church and empire have to do with each other? What would an apostle want to do with Caesar? Well, quite a lot, as we'll see. Uh, Paul had been taken custody earlier in the book of Acts by the Roman government for disturbing the peace. At least that was the accusation brought against him by the Jews. And so the Romans had arrested him. And more than once, Paul has been on trial already in this book. And more than once, Paul has been vindicated in a court of law. It's very clear that Paul is innocent. Even in this story, God furthers his vindication. God further vindicates him. But Paul has a strategy. Uh, He uses his rights as a Roman citizen uh, to keep appealing his case to higher and higher courts. And so now he's finally appealed his case to Caesar. It would be like getting to go before the Supreme Court uh, in our day. In his day, he's getting to go stand before Caesar. That had been his goal all along, and now he's on his way to Rome. And so think about Paul. He's on what's sometimes called his fourth missionary journey. Uh, This is an all-expenses-paid missionary trip, courtesy of the Roman government. All right, so how about that? You want to get the government to pay for your missionary trip, just get arrested. Uh, That's what Paul does here. Uh, The pagans are actually funding his uh, missionary journey because that's what happens when you're a prisoner. Paul is put under the care of a Roman centurion named Julius. And we actually, as we look at this, we have a lot of sympathy for Julius and the situation he's in. And really we see uh, that the Roman Empire, the, uh, with Julius as its representative, wants to be fair to Paul. Uh, it's really the Jews who have persecuted the church up to this point. Rome has not yet begun to persecute the church. Julius will be responsible for getting Paul to Rome for his trial. And it seems that Julius and Paul must have had a sort of gentleman's agreement about how this would work as they travel together. The plan was to travel to Rome by sea. And in Acts chapter 27, we have a record. Acts 27 chronicles their sea voyage in great detail. It's in great detail because Luke, who is the author of this account, was there personally. He writes as we. He talks about what we experienced. He's there. This is all eyewitness testimony that Luke gives us as he is traveling with Paul to Rome on board this ship. In verse 10, Paul gives a warning that they should not set sail because it was getting too late in the season. It was after the Day of Atonement, after Yom Kippur. It's getting into fall. The journey would take them into winter. Paul does not think it's a good idea to travel this late. So this would be probably late October. And we can probably date this to the year 59 AD. We can, we can be that precise uh, about it. But the centurion chose to listen to the pilot and the owner of the ship instead of Paul. And so they set sail. 
And just as Paul predicted, they run into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of difficulties that threaten to destroy the ship and take their lives as they pass through the dangerous waters of the Mediterranean. Uh, they end up having to throw some, car- some cargo overboard in verse 18. Uh, when you think about this, uh, a ship at sea, uh, you've got a man of God, you've got a ship with a bunch of pagans on it, the ship is headed ultimately towards the imperial capital, a storm arises, the sailors throw cargo overboard to try to save themselves. All these details, all these aspects of the story, they really remind us of another biblical story. All these features of the story echo the story of Jonah and remind us of the story of Jonah. Only there's a huge difference. Paul is sort of the anti-Jonah. Jonah in reverse. He is what Jonah should have been. Remember in the story of Jonah, Jonah was running from God. He was running from his mission. He did not want to take God's word to the Gentiles. He was kind of racist who put his own country first and didn't want to share the blessings of God with other people groups. Paul, by contrast, is obeying God. He's carrying God's mission to the nations. He wants to take God's word to the Gentiles. Whereas Jonah himself had to be thrown overboard for the sailors to save their ship, here that is reversed. The sailors must keep Paul with them in order to survive. Their ship will still be lost, but they themselves will be saved if they keep Paul with them. Jonah undergoes a kind of death and resurrection when he's cast overboard and swallowed by the fish and then spit up on dry ground, returning to the land. It's a kind of death and resurrection experience for Jonah. Likewise, Paul undergoes a kind of death and resurrection they all do together as they uh, experience this shipwreck, as they are lowered down into the waters, uh, but then as they come forth on dry ground. It's a kind of death and resurrection story. All kinds of echoes here of the book of Jonah, but it's Jonah done right. Paul is another Jonah, but he's a faithful Jonah. We find in verse 20 that they had been in darkness and storm for many days. And finally, those on board have given hope, given up hope. They have despaired. They've given up all hope of being saved. And that's when Paul rises to the occasion and becomes the de facto captain of the ship. This is a Roman ship now being captained by a Christian apostle. All kinds of symbolism built into that. By this point, everyone knows the decision to disregard Paul's warnings, uh, that 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 was was a bad decision, that Paul's warnings had been correct. Uh, Paul reminds them of that, in fact. Uh, Not as a way of saying, I told you so, though he certainly could have done that, but simply because he wants them to listen to him now. He's got a message he's received from God. He wants to deliver it to them, and he wants to encourage them with this message. He wants them to believe his word. So he says, remember, I was right about what would happen if we set sail. I was right then. You should have listened to me then. You didn't, but listen to me now. And so Paul prophesies. He says, the ship will be lost, but your lives will not be. Okay, that's not really something you want to hear if you're on board a ship, uh, that the ship will be lost. How does Paul know this? He explains, an angel of the God I serve. So this must be the God of the sea, must be the God of the land, it must be the God who's sovereign over everything. If he can speak this way and guarantee this kind of outcome. An angel of the God I serve appeared and said, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. So there's God's purpose. God's going to save the whole ship so Paul can get to Caesar. 
Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And so God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so Paul goes on to say, uh, it will be just as God told me through this angelic messenger. These things will come to pass. We will run aground on some island. The ship will be lost, but we will all be spared. Verse 27 tells us, when the 14th night had come, the sailors began to sense they were close to an island. The 14th night, that's significant. Some of the sailors tried to escape in the lifeboat, but Paul stopped them. Again, you see Paul acting really as the de facto captain of the ship. And Paul says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. They're all in it together. The whole crew must stay together for them to be saved. So the soldiers thwarted the sailors' attempt to cut the lifeboat free and go to safety that way. Said the lifeboat itself uh, is abandoned. As morning began to dawn, Paul urged them to eat. They probably had not eaten for 14 days since the storm started. Maybe because of seasickness or it just wasn't possible. These men are, are starving. They're weak. Paul leads the way. Again, Paul here is in charge. Paul has a meal that looks a lot like the Eucharist. Uh, the same exact language that you find used in the Last Supper accounts elsewhere in Scripture is used here for this meal that Paul has on board the ship. He took bread. He gave thanks to God. He broke it and he began to eat. That's the exact same formula, the exact same pattern you find at the Last Supper. You could say, really here, Paul takes the Lord's Supper on the 14th day. And the men see this and they are encouraged by it and they begin to eat as well, all 276 of them. And then they throw overboard the rest of the wheat they wouldn't need. And as the sun arose the next day, they saw an island nearby. They have feasted in the midst of the storm and now they see their salvation. The ship runs aground, meaning safety is now within reach. And it's interesting. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean, we know that they landed on the island of Malta. You can see it's a tiny little island. It would have been easy to miss. But that's where they land. And had they missed the island of Malta, that would have been it. There are no other islands. That, it, that would have been the end of, uh, of all of their lives. But God, in his providence, spared them just as he promised. And so they... Uh, arrive within sight of the island of Malta. The ship runs aground as the ship is being beat apart by the waves. The soldiers are about to kill the prisoners. Another near-death experience as if the storm wasn't bad enough. Now the soldiers are about to kill the prisoners because those soldiers know if any of these prisoners escape, then it's going to be their heads on the chopping block. That's what happened. If you were a Roman guard in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, your life was forfeit. So the easiest thing to do is just to kill all the prisoners. But the centurion wanted Paul alive. He wanted to save Paul, and so he stops them. Again, for Paul's sake, others are spared. And then they either swam to shore or used debris from the ship to float to shore. It's kind of a Robinson Crusoe kind of picture you have here of the ship out still a little ways at sea, and then they float in to the land, and all 276 of them are saved. When they got to land, they found they were on the island of Malta. Uh, in fact, if you were to go to Malta today, you can find there's a place called St. Paul's Bay uh, where presumably Paul came to shore after this shipwreck. The natives greet them 
And they are exceedingly generous. They show hospitality to these 276 who have come onto their island. They show great kindness. Now consider what's happened here, just this rescue part of it. God has delivered Paul and the whole crew from the deadly chaos of the sea. This is so important to understand in terms of the biblical imagery and symbolism that stands behind it. The Jews had a very defined way from the Hebrew scriptures about how they looked at land and sea symbolically. The Jews were the people of the land. The Gentiles were associated with the sea. The sea was considered symbolic of dark and evil powers threatening to swallow up God's people. Uh, Think of other watery deliverances in scripture like Noah and the flood, where the whole world is destroyed, but Noah and his family are saved through the waters, or the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, where God parts the waters of the Red Sea, that they might cross on dry ground. Or even in the Gospels, the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee when a storm arises, and Jesus calming the storm so they can make it to the other side safely. In each case, what do you see? In each case, you see God overpowering the sea to bring salvation to his people. And so it is here. The winds and the waves were about to overwhelm them. They were about to drown in the abyss of the sea. The sea is a watery grave. It's a place of fear, a place of death. It's a place filled with monsters. But God defeats the sea on their behalf and brings them to safety. God delivers them. This fits right in with all those other water deliverances in Scripture. And this is actually why... Revelation 21 and 22 and the final vision we have of God's new creation tells us that at least symbolically there is no more sea because the sea was a place of chaos and darkness. There's nothing left. There's no more sea. There's nothing left to threaten God's people or God's purposes. There's only peace and safety here in this new creation. At least symbolically, there's no sea in the new creation. So here God has rescued this crew, this mixed crew. Paul and a bunch of pagans have been delivered. Paul has brought them through these hurricane-like conditions to this tiny island of Malta. And again, it falls in line with these other events, these uh, these other uh, patterns that we see in Scripture of God saving his people through water. But just because they've been saved through the storm does not mean the adventure is over. Once on dry ground, a series of very interesting things happen. Remember, this is the 14th day. This is a Sabbath day. If not literally, at least symbolically, but there's reason to think it is literally the Sabbath day. At least Luke wants us to connect all of this with the Sabbath. That's why he's counting the days for us. It's the 14th day. And what's going on? They kindle a fire. Now remember in Exodus, Exodus 35, which I read from, God gives a law. Do not kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. Indeed, to do so under the law would be worthy of death. It would bring curse. Now we might think, well, you know, if you study that law out very carefully, you see it's a law that applies specifically to Israel. It doesn't seem to be for the Gentiles. And it really has to do with worship. And so in Israel, on the Sabbath day, God's fire at his altar was to burn brightest, and the Israelites were not to kindle fires that would compete with God's. It would be considered a form of idolatry to build up your own fire to compete with God's fire on the Sabbath day. So, okay, fine, that that doesn't seem, you know, maybe that doesn't necessarily connect with this story. Maybe we shouldn't draw lines between this story and that law in the Old Testament. But look at what happens next. Here you're going to see this is not a coincidence. 
Paul is a servant to everyone. Paul's the kind of guy, there's no job too small. He's willing to do it. And so he goes out to gather sticks. He's gathering sticks for the fire. But remember the incident in Numbers 15. A man gathers sticks on the Sabbath and is executed for it. Here we are on the 14th day, a Sabbath day, and Paul is out gathering sticks. And so what should happen? He should die. And so what happens next? As he's throwing his sticks into the fire to stoke up the fire, a serpent bites him. A serpent seeks to carry out the death penalty. A serpent seeks to execute Paul in accord with the curse of the law. And of course, this serpent is symbolic of Satan. Satan uses the law, uh, the curse of the law, to bring death. That's Satan's design. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. uh, Paul says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Satan, in effect, uses the law to further death. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law, some way, strengthens sin that leads to death. Well, here Paul seems to have violated the law, and here it seems the serpent is seeking to use the law to sting Paul, to inject him with poisonous venom, to curse him with death. Paul ought to die. But what actually happens, Paul does not die. Indeed, Paul is unharmed. Indeed, he's able to shake the serpent off into the fire, symbolizing and prefiguring the final fate of the serpent. And the message is clear. Paul, as an apostle of Christ, as a man in Christ, cannot be harmed by the law or by Satan. He is immune to the curses of the law. He is immune. He is protected from Satan's bite. Satan can no longer sting him because he is a man in Christ. This is a picture of what Christ has done. Those who are in Christ find the curses of the law have been replaced by the blessings of the gospel. This is a picture uniquely of Paul's salvation. Paul has been saved. He's been redeemed from the curse of the law. The seas representing these chaotic evil forces, couldn't take Paul out. Indeed, everyone else was spared for his sake. And now these laws that that, that bring curse can't take Paul out either. They can't sting Paul. Paul is immune to the dangers of the sea and the curses of the law. When Paul was first bitten, it's interesting, the natives, I mean, you see how pagan they are. Uh, The natives thought, aha, this man must be a criminal. He must be a murderer. He was able to escape his fate. He was able to dodge justice when he survived the shipwreck. But the viper is going to give him what he deserves. And they attribute this all to the goddess Justice. This is who they, one of the gods they worship, the goddess Justice. They figure, oh, the goddess Justice is going to take care of this man after all. There's a kind of poetic justice to this in their minds. And this is how pagans read the world. You need to recognize this. Pagans look at the world in an overly simplistic way where there is this simplistic correlation between personal sins and suffering. And so they figure Paul got bit by a poisonous viper and so therefore he must deserve death. But Paul doesn't deserve death. He doesn't deserve death anymore because Christ has died for him. He has victory over death. He has victory over the curses of the law. He has victory over Satan. The serpent can't touch him anymore. The serpent can no longer use the curses of the law against him to bring him down, to hurt him. 
The curses of the law are thrown at him and they just bounce right off of him because he is a man in Christ. He's shielded from the curses of the law and protected against the sting of the serpent, the sting of Satan, which is death. And when they discover that Paul is not harmed, what do they do? The natives quickly revise their assessment and conclude, oh no, he must not be a murderer, he must be a god. So they draw the opposite kind of, of, of correlation. Because he survived a snake, bit, a snake bite, he must be some kind of deity, some kind of divine figure walking here among us. A divine figure who's come to visit our island. Paul's not hurt by the viper bite, so he must be a god himself. Now this is not the only time in the book of Acts that Paul is hailed as a god. It happens in Lystra earlier in the book of Acts. No doubt Paul clarified he's not a god and refused any kind of worship or homage they might have wanted to pay him. And certainly he would have explained he's he's not a god, he's a servant of the true God. He would have delivered that message to him, no doubt. He's protected not because he is a god, but because he is God's. Because he belongs to God. And so he's beyond the reach of the curse. He's beyond the bite of the serpent. Not being hurt by the serpent is symbolic. Satan and all false gods have been defeated. Again, Paul is immune to their attacks. And then Paul begins to heal the sick. Publius, the leading citizen of the island, the chief man of Malta, entertains them for three days. And again, this may be a symbolic number of days. But his father, Publius's father, becomes sick with dysentery a typical island disease. And so Paul goes in and prays over him and lays hands on him and heals him. Publius' father is raised up on the third day. Everywhere Paul goes, people are getting blessed. If Paul's on board your ship, it can't, you know, the crew can't be lost. If Paul comes to your island, he can survive a snake bite. If Paul comes to your island, he can heal your sick. Because that's what Paul goes on to do So far from becoming sick himself, Paul becomes a leader, he becomes a healer, leading the way, healing, the, in a sense, even as he became the captain of the ship, he becomes now replacing Publius as the leading man of the island, the chief of the island. And so all the sick on the island come to him, all those who have any kind of disease come to him. And it's as if Paul has opened up a clinic and he's healed practically the whole island before he's done. And remember, again, all of this connects with Mark 16. Healing miracles, uh, like snake handling, is an apostolic sign of the kingdom in Mark 16. Wherever Paul goes, he brings kingdom blessings with him. You want victory over the wind and waves of the sea. You want victory over the serpent. You want victory over illness. Find you someone like Paul. Someone who represents Christ's kingdom. He brings the blessings of Christ's kingdom to this tiny island. And all of this results in the end in Paul being greatly honored by the people. And they gave him all kinds of things necessary for the rest of their trip to Rome. They bless the man of God. He has blessed them and they bless him in return. Now what are we to make of all of this? How does this fit into the book of Acts? Why is this story here? We have not been given this highly detailed account just out of historical interest. Luke has chosen the details to include and has crafted his account to make a vital point about what is happening, about the role of the church in relation to society and about God's blessings 
in a peculiar way for his people, but really God's blessings for all people. I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this account, the book of Acts has been tracing the spread of the gospel and how people have converted everywhere that the ministry of the church goes. But you don't have any record of that here. There's no record here of Paul having any evangelistic success with the ship crew or with the Maltese. We don't know that any of the men on the ship converted. We don't know that any of the men on the island converted. Nothing in the story suggests that they were in any kind of definitive way. And yet all of these people are blessed by God through Paul. And I think that shows us something really astounding about the world, especially after Christ's coming. It shows us something about God's intentions to the world. It shows us something about God's goodness and God's care. Now let me be really clear here so there's not any misunderstanding. Just because the people on board the ship or the people on the island were blessed in some way by Paul's presence and Paul's ministry among them, does n- and, and despite the fact that they didn't convert, does not mean that people can be saved eternally without conversion to Christ. God certainly judges, and God will pour out His wrath on those who reject Christ in the end. And certainly God does bring calamities into history as temporal manifestations of His eternal judgment. And certainly there is a lake of fire awaiting Satan and the wicked in the end. That's all there. There's still an antithesis between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the godly and the ungodly, between Christians and non-Christians. But there's something else interesting here in this story. Indeed, I think you see this as an emphasis in this story. Now that Christ has come, God's intention is to bless in various ways the whole human race through His people. The Maltese people have stoked up a fire on the 14th day on the Sabbath, but they don't die because Paul is with them. Just as Paul himself doesn't die when he's gathering up sticks. And I think if you ask, why, why does that happen? You know, we've got these two Old Testament passages that connect with this event on the island of Malta. What's going on there? I think the point is simple. The curse of the law no longer reigns. The blessing of the gospel has taken its place. And Paul represents that and he represents that to these people. The reason Paul can shake off the snake that bites him is the fact that the great serpent of old, Satan, has been defeated. And he no longer has power over God's people. And he's no longer the ruler of the nations. And he can no longer deceive them as he once did. Satan has lost his sting. His venom is now powerless. The curse has been broken. The floodgates of blessing have been opened. The world is a new place. Because of the gospel, because Christ now reigns and because of his presence with his people, the world is a new place. And indeed, we can say it is constantly growing better. Note, too, that in this story, the the godless sailors are saved precisely because of the godliness of Paul. You have these godless sailors and soldiers who are saved because of the godliness of Paul. Now, I don't mean they're eternally saved, but they experience blessings in this world because of their proximity to Paul. You know, we have that expression, we're all in the same boat. Uh, I think that saying actually derives from this story in Acts 27. The story of Acts 27 illustrates perfectly what that means. It's a mixed crew. Everyone... On this ship, whether Christian or not, 
They're all in it together. They're all facing the same storm. And we know this, all of us, you know, whether you're Christians and non-Christians in some way share certain things in common. We are subject to the same kinds of ups and downs. Now, very clearly running through this shared fabric that belongs to all of us as humans is a thread of blessing that is uniquely attached to God's people. That's very, very clear. And because of God's love for his own people, oftentimes non-Christians end up, in spite of their unbelief, sharing in certain blessings that God gives to his people. They share in certain temporal blessings because God wants to bless his people. And there's a kind of overflow. There's spillage of that over to the rest of the world. And I, I do think you find this all throughout Scripture. For the sake of ten righteous, God would have spared the whole city of Sodom. Even ten righteous people and the whole city would have been spared judgment. God blesses all of Potiphar's household for the sake of Joseph. Some of them may have converted, but certainly not all. And the whole household is blessed for Joseph's sake. We can ask the question about today, how many businesses and cities and even nations are spared the wrath of God because of the presence of even a few righteous in their midst? The lives of Paul's shipmates were spared for his sake. God granted him these people. Their salvation, in a sense, was in his hands. It was attached to him. Human society owes everything to the mercy of God and to the presence of the people of God. Because God's mercy is especially shown to the people of God, but sometimes that mercy flows over in temporal ways to those who are outside of the church. Those societies that house the people of God in them are often blessed by the presence of those people of God. Rome and Malta were at least friendly to Paul and they reaped all kinds of benefits because of it. Julius and Publius were friendly to Paul and reaped all kinds of benefits because of it. Look again at what the angel says to Paul. God has granted you, all those who are with you, They are saved because of Paul. It's like Noah and his ark. It's like this ship has been, you know, it's like, it's it's like Paul is now Noah and this whole ship has become his ark. And just as Noah was able to save his whole family, Paul is able to save all those who are with them, with him. They're blessed because they're close to him. But many of those blessed because of Paul are clearly not Christians. They're clearly not Christians, but they still receive many temporal blessings because of Paul's presence in their midst. Because Paul is with them, they're blessed in some way. And I would say we see the same thing going on in the world around us today. God blesses the whole for the sake of the part. He spares many who reject him because they are linked in some way to those who accept him, to those who trust him. Non-Christians and indeed non-Christian societies that harbor God's people and don't persecute them but are friendly towards them experience a great deal of blessing even today. Or to turn this around, we need to recognize that we are the bearers of God's blessing in whatever society we find ourselves. There's no question our society is anti-God and opposed to God in all kinds of ways. We need to know we are the bearers of God's blessing even in this society. And that God preserves order and withholds judgment for our sake. Why hasn't God obliterated America off of the map? Why haven't we faced the fate of Sodom in our country? As wicked and evil as we are as a nation. 
as idolatrous as we are. I think all we can say is God is sparing this nation for the sake of the righteous. Just as He spared the men on board the ship, just as He blessed so many on the island of Malta. God spares many lives because of us for our sake. Unbelievers cannot eat from the Lord's table, and I don't think Paul shared the Eucharistic meal with the others on board the ship. But in a sense, they did get the crumbs that fell from Paul's table. And in a sense, that's what happens with the world. They get to gather up the crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. And that seems to be happening in the world around us in all kinds of ways. Let me give you another dimension, another way of looking at this. Again, we're not told that the people on Malta converted because of Paul's ministry there. But they were certainly incredibly blessed by his presence. He brought healing to their whole island. Paul wrote elsewhere in Galatians 6, Do good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. That's Galatians 6.10. Do good to everyone, especially those who belong to the household of faith. I think sometimes we camp out on the second part of that verse, and it certainly does need to be an emphasis. We do good to our fellow believers. Our fellow believers are our spiritual kin. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. The ministry of the church is geared first and foremost towards helping our own. We care for one another's needs. We bear one another's burdens. No one in the church should ever starve to death or die of exposure to the elements because they lacked food and and clothing or shelter. No, we provide for one another. We care for one another. That's our first priority, is to care for our fellow Christians. But sometimes I think we get so focused on that, we forget the first part of the verse altogether. But not Paul. Paul practiced what he preached, or in this case, practiced what he wrote. Paul carried out a ministry to those outside the household of God, on the ship and on the island. And there are ways in which we are called to do the same. The ministry of the church, yes, is to focus especially on its own. But it's also to overflow. It's to spill over to unbelievers as well. We're to help all people, all men who bear God's image. We're to love all men as our neighbors. We're to seek to serve them and to seek to heal them and to bless them. And we do this because God Himself does it. Because God Himself shows blessings to those who are not His people. Paul represents God's mercy. And and the scope and and, and the breadth of Paul's ministry here represents the wideness of God's own love and mercy. God's care and concern for all people who bear His image. Even those who will not ultimately come to Christ and salvation. God still shows them care and kindness in all kinds of ways. Jesus gives, as He says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, God gives rain and sunshine to the just and the unjust. God scatters widely the blessings of safety and health and prosperity. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy life in God's world. Now, an eternity of uh, a horrific eternity awaits you if you refuse to come to Christ, if the kindness of God doesn't lead you to repentance. But still, all everybody can enjoy God's blessings as they relate to this life. And we need to be the bearers of God's blessing in various ways to people. Indeed, I would say we need to stand in awe of God's goodness. We need to be filled with gratitude at the good things God fills His world with. God fills His world with His own goodness. He continually pours out goodness and kindness on the world in all kinds of ways. Not just spiritual, 
kindnesses, not just spiritual blessings for his own peculiar people, though that's central and that's always the focus. But he gives blessings that pertain to this life to all people. It's so interesting that the book of Acts wraps up with this kind of story. The whole book of Acts has been about the work of the Holy Spirit bringing people to faith in Jesus. And that really is the main thrust of the church's mission. But then you come to the very end and you have a story where Paul is blessing all kinds of people and there's not even a hint that they come to believe in Jesus. There is some sense in which the ministry of the church, while yes, it's mostly targeted towards our own, still in a way serves the common good of all. I think that's what this whole story really is about in Acts 27 and 28. It's screaming out to us, look how good God is to everyone. And look at how God's people are called to be a blessing to everyone. There's another verse Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that goes with this. 1 Timothy chapter 4.10. Maybe you've read this verse before and been confused by it. Paul says there, God is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. We think it should read only those who believe. And of course, in an ultimate sense, that's true. And in an eternal sense, that's true. Eternal salvation is only for believers. But there's some sense in which God provides salvation in the form of health and prosperity and well-being to all kinds of people outside of His church. Again, the rain and the sunshine fall on the just and the unjust. In what sense is God the Savior of those who don't believe? Well, at least in part, it's by filling their lives with so many good things. Filling their lives with so many gifts. And again, these gifts and these blessings God gives are designed to lead to repentance. Paul says in Romans 2, the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. But God is good even to His enemies. Well, here's another aspect of this. Why does Paul want to go to Caesar Why does Paul want to preach the gospel to Caesar? Why does that have such an interest for Paul? Clearly, if all Paul is interested in is making individual converts, then there's no more reason to preach to Caesar than any other individual if you're just concerned about making individual converts. But no, I think Paul knows God's purposes are bigger than that. He knows the scope of God's purposes. Paul is interested in preaching to Caesar specifically. He has this passion to preach Christ to Caesar because he wants to see the whole civilization transformed. He wants to see a new civil order brought in. He wants to see a new society emerge. One that is in greater conformity with the gospel. One that is built upon the bedrock of Christ's gospel. Not just because that's good for God's people, but because that's good for everybody. Even non-Christians would benefit from a society that is shaped by the Word of God, by the truth of God. And of course we can say the same thing in our own society. Why do we care about things like gay marriage? Why do we care what people outside the church do with things like marriage? Well, because we're concerned about more than just the church. We're concerned about all of human life and all of humanity. We want what's best for everybody. And we know that things like same-sex marriage are not good for everybody. That it actually harms society as a whole when God's definition of marriage is twisted beyond all recognition. Paul wanted to see the civilization itself transform. A new social order, a new civil order. That's why he wants to preach to Caesar. 
And the thing is, that is largely what happened, not in Paul's own day, but in the centuries since Paul, as the kingdom has continued to grow and spread. Traditionally, that's how this story is read in terms of the symbolism of this story. The ship is a Roman ship. It symbolizes Rome. Ships often symbolize symbolize the kingdoms or the nations that they come from. This ship is Rome's ship of state. And what's going to happen to the Roman Empire? Yes, the Roman Empire will crash and be torn apart. But the people will be spared and God will preserve peace and order in the world. And that is exactly what happened when Rome fell. There were people who thought that when Rome falls, that's going to be the end of it, the end of civilization, the end of of the rule of law and the end of order and peace and prosperity in the world. And guess what? It wasn't. The ship of Rome sank, but the people were spared and a new society, a better society, uh, certainly not perfect, but more Christianized society was built in its place. A society that benefited, yes, certainly God's people, but even those who are not God's people down to this present day, we reap benefits of the society that was put in place after Rome's fall. And this is what we need to see. The world is growing better because of the gospel. Life is awesome. Life is incredible. Life is filled with all kinds of blessings. Certainly this is true spiritually as the church continues to grow globally at an unprecedented pace, especially in places like Asia and Africa. We live in an era of unprecedented growth for the church, but it's true in other ways too. Again, the whole book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, everything that happened in the book of Acts is attributed to the ministry of Christ through His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is confessed by the church as the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit gives life. He creates life. He sustains life. He brings new life. He gives eternal life. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. But even just ordinary life is maintained by the Holy Spirit. Ordinary common life. We need to give God thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to recognize that we are the representatives of the Spirit's work, the Spirit's blessing in the world. See, Acts 27 and 28 are kind of a parable for all of world history. A kind of parable for the whole world and all of history. You see here, God especially blesses His people. Paul is blessed in ways that nobody else in this story is. And yet Paul is also an instrument of blessing even to those who are on the outside. Those on the outside of the church. And we need to recognize this is our calling as well. God has specially put His blessing on us and we need to give God thanks for that. But we also need to give God thanks for all the other ways that He blesses life outside the church. All the other ways He's called us to be a blessing to those outside the church. Do good to all. Yes, especially to those of the household of faith. But do good to all. Remember, God is the Savior of all men. Yes, especially those who believe. But every good thing that anybody gets in this world comes from God. Let's give Him thanks and praise. Father, we do thank You for the kindness that You have poured out upon Your people in Christ, but indeed even the kindness You poured out on the whole human race. We thank You that You preserve law and order, that You give us tastes of peace and prosperity. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Paul. May we carry out similar ministries, blessing those around us. 
Yes, especially those in the household of faith, but even those on the outside as well. May we be a blessing. May we represent your goodness and your love to all people we come in contact with. Father, we thank you for the way your spirit is superintending the history of the world to pour all kinds of good gifts into our lives. We thank you for this, the abundant kindness that fills our lives in every way. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.